Welcome to the Grow Strong Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bell, and I interview business leaders who are committed to their own growth and the development of everyone on their team. If you enjoy my podcast, be sure to subscribe and rate it on your favorite podcast platform. Welcome to the Grow Strong Leaders podcast. I'm your host, Meredith Bell. And my podcast is brought to you by my company. And we publish books and tools that help people learn how to communicate more effectively with each other in the workplace. You can learn more at growstrongleaders.com. Today, I am just so excited to have as my guest, someone that is going to bring such value to you, my audience. His name is Blaine Bartlett. Blaine, welcome to my show. Meredith, I have been so looking forward to this. Thank you for the the invitation, and I'm looking forward to it as well. Well, you know, I want to give a shout out to Tony Martinetti because he's the one whose podcast I was listening to, and I heard you. And when you spoke, I thought, oh, my goodness, I need to meet this man. And by the way, Tony's podcast is called The Virtual Campfire, and I highly recommend that. And so Blaine and I have gotten to know each other, and I just I just love this man. I'll just be honest. Blaine, <laughs> I think we have a mutual admiration, but there's so much good in the work that you have done over the years. I'm just so excited to be able to share you with my audience. And before we get into our conversation, I want to give a little bit about your background so that they can appreciate more about who you are. Blaine is the president and CEO of Avatar Resources, Inc., a consulting firm he founded in 1987. He coaches and consults worldwide with leaders, executives, companies, and governments. He has personally delivered programs to more than 300,000 individuals and has directly impacted more than 1 million people worldwide. He's also the founder of the Institute for Compassionate Capitalism, and a longtime member of the Transformational Leadership Council. He sits on the board of directors of the Unstoppable Foundation and the World Business Academy, where he also serves as director of education. Blaine is the author of five books, and we're going to talk today about his two latest ones, which I happen to have with me right here. Cap, excuse me, Compassionate Capitalism, A Journey to the Soul of Business, which has been an international bestseller, and his latest book, The Leadership Mindset Weekly. So Blaine, you have been working with all kinds of organizations for more than 30 years, and I would love for you to tell us two things. Tell us some of the key points in that journey. And have there been any changes in your focus along the way and what you've been helping them with? Wow. Um, Yes. In 30 years, 30 plus years there, uh, as I'm banging the table here, uh, there have been uh, some, some, actually some very tangible changes uh, in those three plus decades. Um, You know, one of the first things I really started noticing, I think, Meredith, uh, and this goes early on as, you know, before I started doing any of this kind of work, really, it's when I was in, you know, as an employee in a company. And I started noticing that 
people didn't seem to be really happy. <laughs> it was, uh, and I and I don't mean to minimize happiness or to grandize uh, happiness at all, but there's something about the human spirit that looks uh, to uh, to be alive. And a lot of these companies, and I'll just kind of generalize this: a lot of these companies, the life seemed to not be there. People were there, obviously, but the aliveness that accompanies creativity, the aliveness that accompanies innovation didn't seem to be there. And I got curious. I mean, I, I truly, really got curious about what is it about coming into an organization that takes what tends to be pretty happy people out in, you know, in their lives. They come in, they hang their hat up on the, uh, on the hat rack, so to speak, punch in the clock, and, you know, and then they stand there waiting to be told what to do. I mean, it's kind of like they lost their agency. And what is it about the organization that made that happen? Well, uh, that curiosity led, you know, basically has led me into this career uh, that is designed for me to make a difference in terms of how the workplace actually functions. People spend most of their lives at work. You know, I mean, functionally speaking, most of their adult lives at work. Mm -hmm. And if I'm not in a place that uh, is uplifting, um, you know, something's wrong. And I think... Part of, and this is where, to answer the second part of the question, where I've started to see some changes, and it has to do with the way that people are beginning to define what the purpose of business is. And for me, the purpose of business, and this is kind of where I work today, the purpose of business is to uplift the experience of being alive on this planet, period. To uplift the experience of being alive on this planet. And if I'm doing that well with my product or my service, yeah, I'm going to have people beating down the doors to, you know, to buy whatever it is that I'm selling because they feel good about themselves. You know, and that includes my employee base. The purpose of business is to uplift the experience of being alive on this planet. Creativity comes in. Uh, yeah, connection comes in. And we'll talk about connection in a minute because it's absolutely crucial to compassion. And there's the, 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 so we're going to go down that rabbit hole, I'm sure. But those are the two main, main things that I'm beginning to see today. And all an organization is at the end of the day, and then I'll get off my soapbox here. <laughs> all an organization is at the end of the day is a collection of people that are in relationship. That's all it is. It's a collection of people that are in relationship. And the most obvious relationships are the interpersonal ones that we can see. You know, my relationship with you, my relationship with my boss, my relationship with my coworkers. But they're also in relationship with process. They're in relationship with goals and objectives. They're in relationship with the values of the organization. I mean, they're, they're, everything has a relational component. And companies that are being successful today, the leaders in these organizations are beginning to pay attention to the quality of the relationships the quality of the relationships, because if relationships are working well, the organization is probably going to be pretty successful. When relationships start going south, all bets are off. Mm. I mean, you can look at best.com as an example of this, this mortgage company. I mean, that was just in the press. You know, CEO fires 900 people you know, online. Mm -hmm. I mean, it was yeah, relationships. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Or the just, lack thereof. <laughs> or, yeah, or the, yeah, just the qualitative dynamic in you know, what makes a relationship healthy. People feel alive. That's what a healthy relationship is. I feel alive when I'm with you. How do I feel about me when I'm in your presence? How do I feel about me when I'm in the presence of your product or service? If I'm uplifted, I'm going to hang around. 
and I'm going to probably be doing some pretty good stuff with you. Mm -hmm. Wow, that's a great way to kick things off, Blaine, because you talked about so many different things there. And of course, it all resonates with me. And that's why I have just enjoyed so much learning through your books, even more about your work and, and your approach. I want to kind of lay the groundwork for the Compassionate Capitalism book. Talk about the why, because you co-authored that with David Meltzer. So you might want to, you know, just tie in the relationship you and David had. And what was your why for creating this book in and, and put it in the context of another phrase that my listeners may be more familiar with, which is conscious capitalism. So yeah. the, the distinction there with compassionate capitalism and conscious capitalism. Yeah, great question. Um, yeah, the the author of Conscious Capitalism, of Conscious Capitalism, John Mackey and Rasha Sodia, are both pretty good friends of mine. Um, yeah, I've had them on my podcast. Uh, I've known them for some time. And I was sitting down with Raj um, oh, a couple of years back, and we were talking about conscious capitalism. And conscious capital consciousness is about awareness, an increase in awareness increases my choice-making capacity. More awareness, more choices. So part of the major thrust of conscious capitalism is recognizing that we have choices about how we conduct business. And a lot of those choices have to do with expanding how we define stakeholders. And, and John, you know, John Mackey was very specific about this. You know, the Whole Foods environment, the stakeholder universe is much larger than what you would find in a typical retail you know, supermarket outlet. But I, you know, in the conversation I was having with Roz, I, you know, um, the point I was making and the point that I came to conclude to was that awareness is one thing, but what, what's the quality of the action that it compels? And this is where compassion came in. And it's impossible for me to feel compassion unless I experience connection. So I may have an awareness that I've got a broad stakeholder universe that uh, I should be paying attention to. But if I don't feel connected to it, to them, you know, whatever them may be, I'm not going to act in a way that is compassionate. Their best interests don't necessarily rise to the surface. So I wanted to write a book that spoke to not only you know the awareness of consciousness you know that consciousness makes possible but what's the behavior how do we act compassionately to all of these varied stakeholders and the 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 paradox almost is you know, when you think of compassion and capitalism together i mean you can think of conscious capitalism together and and it's not such a jarring mashup compassion and capitalism in most people's experience don't it's oil and water mm -hmm. And that's what I wanted to address. And it kind of goes back to your very first question. Um, you know, the, the lack of aliveness that was experienced by me and most organizations. Most organizations are toxic to the human spirit. And they're toxic to the world in general. Compassion is the antidote to that. But compassion doesn't just appear. I have to experience connection. Which leads me to David Meltzer, the co-author on the book. Um, yeah, you mentioned I was on the board of the Unstoppable Foundation. Uh, and full disclosure, my wife is the founder uh, of the foundation, and I've been on the board for you know, <laughs> for a lot of years. Um, but you know, the foundation does work all over the world, primarily in, in uh, equatorial Africa right now. Um, 
that she was running a, a fundraising campaign, and uh, she was given the name by one of uh, her mentors uh, of David Meltzer, uh, somebody that we might want to contact, you know, just to, to have a conversation about moving perhaps into um, the sports world because he's the uh, he was the former CEO of Lee Steinberg's agency, uh, the largest sports agency in the world, and then he also runs uh, as CEO of the Sports One Marketing. So he's got a lot of contacts. Kind of a backstory. Well, I got a hold of David and went to meet him at his office. And as I walked in, the feeling in that office just, it was just kind of, this is different because, I mean, sport agencies, sports, particularly professional sports, is cutthroat. <laughs> I mean, it really is. It's all about performance. And there was something different about what David was doing at Sports One at that time. And as I sat down and started talking to him, uh, it, I mean, light bulbs went off. I mean, he, this was a compassionate capitalist. Here was, and sitting in front of me, was an exemplar of what I was speaking about, and it showed up in his organization. And he had some great stories. Now, I, I had the book, oh, probably about 80% done at that point in time. It was all outlined. But I was missing some stories that I wanted to actually weave into it. And so when I say 80% done, yeah, by the time I finished talking with Dave, it was actually only about 50% done because <laughs> there was a lot more stuff that we ended up adding. And it, it was just, you know, just practical information about how a compassionately run capitalistic organization could actually thrive. And that ended up becoming a large part of uh the, the content structure of uh, the compassionate capitalism, a journey to the soul of business. Uh, we ended up being a, a number one international bestseller in five international markets. Uh, or, you know, and, and we held that position for you know, some time after, after launch. So you know, that's how the book came into, into being. And it was you know, my attempt at just saying, look, there's a difference between being a conscious capitalist, a conscious businessman. You also have to be compassionate. And compassion requires hard choices. Yeah, you have to make hard choices to, you know, in service of the, the welfare of all of the stakeholders. So I'm not going to do this just because it's expedient, just because it's profitable, just because it's the lowest cost way to move. It may, in fact, be the highest cost way to move, but the, the compassionate thing to do is to take that action. Now, and I have to make money. Yeah, profit is part of this. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But if I'm, if I'm organizing around... The purpose of business is to uplift the experience of being alive on the planet. Those decisions will always pay benefit. Mm -hmm. And this is, you know, it, it's Adam Smith's you know, whole notion of enlightened self-interest, which is what the invisible hands of commerce were all about, enlightened self-interest. We yes. both benefit, which is, yeah. I wanted so. to just check because, of course, you what you said so far, it, it indicates there's a negative connotation associated with capitalism. And you spend a fair amount of time up front in the book talking about what's broken. And I would love for you to just kind of summarize what's broken and also what's the solution in terms of the compassionate component? How does that You've touched on it, but I'd like you to talk a little bit more specifically about the part that's broken and how this can repair. Yeah. Um, well, I mentioned Adam Smith. Um, when Adam, yeah, Adam Smith wrote the first textbook on an economy, it was the first published example of what an economic model is. Yeah, you know, and, and it came to be called capitalism. He he never used that word, 
But the idea of the wealth of nations, nations trading with each other for mutual benefit. Yeah, and it was literally, he defined it as enlightened self-interest. And so, yeah, he recognizes that, you know, we have an interest. We're not going to shoot ourselves in the foot. Yeah. But we also have to take care of our trading partners because if they aren't set up to thrive, we're not going to benefit. So there's that reciprocity that comes into play. You fast forward in time, you know, he wrote that book in 1776. Uh, jump forward into the uh, late 40s, early 50s, uh, you know, mid 50s. Um, and you get Milton Friedman, uh, you get the philosopher Ayn Rand. Uh, and I remember reading uh, Ayn Rand's works, Atlas Shrugged uh, you know, is, 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 a, is a great example of that. Um, but she was talking about um, rational self-interest. You know, the self-made man, I mean, you know, serving, you know, doing things in my own best interest. And, the, and this is where, th particularly with modern day capitalism, things really got off the rails. This focus on rational self-interest, which is different than enlightened self-interest. Rational self-interest puts me first. And you know, it becomes evidenced in Milton Friedman's uh, later work. You know, you know, Milton Friedman, Nobel laureate in economics, famously said that the purpose of business is to make a profit. Shareholders first. Rational self-interest. It's rational self-interest and it excludes other stakeholders. It puts the shareholder in the catbird seat. And decisions that are made, and this is where we end up you know, uh, working towards quarterly profits, short-term goals, mm -hmm. um, you know, expedient things that are done to you know, keep the share price up, all that stuff which is fundamentally different than working towards uh, uplifting the experience of life on the planet. Yeah. It, you know, there's a fundamental disconnect there. Mm -hmm. That's where the breakdown. I, I mean, very general. It's very general. But that's you can point to that. Citizens United is a great example of some of the consequence of that. And, I mean, there, there's just a lot of ways that this ended up coming into play that have not been healthy in the long term. And the antidote to it, I think, is found in nature. I mean, my last TED talk was uh, nature is the ultimate business guru. And in nature, what you find is the only truly free market economy. It's the only one that you'll ever find. There's no artificial constraints on the movement of resources. They just flow in the way that they are designed to flow. Now, the net of this, if you look at nature, Everything in nature serves as a center of distribution, not as a center of accumulation. And that is a big distinction. Most businesses operate and most business leaders operate under the assumption that their job is to accumulate wealth. No, it's not. My job is to act as a center of distribution. It's energy. And when energy gets dammed up, catastrophic things begin to happen when there's a you know, big release. You know, think of a dam bursting and, and that uh -huh. sort of thing. The idea of being a center of distribution, and this isn't altruistic. This isn't you know, socialism. This is, this is nature saying the way to thrive in life is to serve as a center of distribution. Yeah, you're going to have enough coming back in that will you know, benefit you so that you can continue the business. The business has to be viable. But you know, in my business, I mean, I give away a lot of stuff. 
you know, intellectual property, that sort of thing. Uh, we've got, you know, common law copyrights. I mean, yeah, just, I mean, yeah, I don't, it's, it's not proprietary. It just moves through me. And I, you know, I've got enough. <laughs> I don't need to have more. You know, I'm going to continue to grow and the business continues to grow. So more always comes. But this center of distribution um, uh, framing is, is different than being a center of accumulation. Mm-hmm. And getting leaders to understand that uh, becomes, you know, that, that's why I ended up writing the other book, uh, The Leadership Mindset Weekly, because it's a shift in mindset. Yes. And, and that is kind of the next thing I wanted to move into, because it's your definition of leadership is also so clean, simple, and rich with just, what, three words, right? Is it just three mm-hmm. words? Do I have it right? Three words, yep. So talk about those three words and dissect them in terms of how they work together to equal what you perceive as being an effective leader. Well, yeah, I'll just start with how you define a leader. A leader is anybody that causes movement. I mean, you strip away uh, personality, you strip away just all of the artifacts, you know, artifacts that we think are associated with leaders. At the end of the day, a leader causes movement. For ill or for good, they cause movement. So the question is never, am I a leader? The question is, you know, is really, excuse me, am I effective at, being, at causing the kind of movement that I need to have in order to get the results I want? So you just start with that premise that leaders cause movement. Ideally, you're going to cause movement that gets you the kind of results that you say that you'd like to have. So it becomes a question of effectiveness. Effective leadership, and this is where the three words come in, is the activity of co-creating coordinated movement. Co-creating coordinated movement in the system in which I find myself. Co-created coordinated movement. That's all I need to pay attention to as a leader. If, I'm, if I've got co-creation, essentially ownership is transferred. My idea now is your idea. I don't have to uh, tell you to do something. You own it, so you're going to go finding ways to, to make it happen because you feel you know, connected to it. And, and then the coordinated movement, yeah, organizations are just relationships. And yeah, when you put an organization together and throw people into it, you know, you've created a mess. <laughs> the uh, the old uh, organizational development joke is, you know, we went away, we designed the perfect organization and screwed it up when we put people in it. And I mention that because what happens is that even though I've got co-created um, dynamics in place here, you know, we both agree that this outcome is really important to both of us. The coordinated movement piece, we have preferences about how we do that dance. So conflict is a natural part of any relationship. Healthy conflict is useful. It truly is. So leaders need to be able to coordinate movement. I'm going to step on your toes. Part of the coordination is how do we actually make it okay to step on toes and and then ensure that we don't do it again without blowing everything up. You know, we we have preferences. You know, I squeeze the toothpaste tube in one place. My wife squeezes it in another we, we have, have separate toothpaste tubes, so that's so do not we. an issue. <laughs> so do we. But the coordinated movement of living together requires you know, paying attention to some of those little subtleties and then not being so attached to my preference mm. is the right preference. Mm-hmm. 
So um, co-creating coordinated movement uh, you know, comes into play here. So when I'm when I'm working with leaders and organizations and teams and organizations, co-creation. What does that look like? What does it sound like? What does it smell like? What do I need to do to make that happen? And it can't be imposed. It's an invitation. Co-creation is an invitational process. So you know how that goes in an organization is is. Is yeah, what I'm thinking of is, is folks that are used to being in control and the more command and control directive type of leader, what kind of process do you use to help them become more enlightened about this idea of co-creating instead of commanding and controlling? Well, part of it has to do with, I mean, in, in the language of business almost always revolves around return on investment. Yeah, you know, what's the, you know, why would I change? What's the ROI on me changing? Um, the ROI is, you know, you know I'll, I'll put it in the context of elegance. Uh, yeah, software coders, when they, when they write elegant code, elegant code does exactly what it's supposed to do without any unintended consequences. Leadership can be seen through that same lens. Far too many leaders today have far too many unintended consequences because of their actions that they have to go back and clean up. So when I go back to the return on investment, if I'm gonna invest in myself and learn how to co-create more effectively, what I begin to do is I begin to reduce cycle time. I begin to reduce uh, the need to do overwork. I read, you know, employee retention goes up, uh, employee morale goes up because people feel valued. They see, you know, they feel seen. I mean, there's a lot of tangible and intangible results. Leadership that is elegant is leadership that has few to no, I'm just saying few, has few unintended consequences that we have to go back and clean up after. I mean, th these unintended consequences are a direct result of feeling like I'm in control, damn it. You need to do what I said to do because I'm the boss, damn it. That doesn't work. Not in the way that we're looking to have organizations function today. People don't want to have themselves put in a box. Yeah. Yeah. I just wonder with some of the folks you work with, do you get resistance? to this idea of co-creating. I'm just mm -hmm. imagining someone being concerned about the results. If they're a leader and responsible for a particular group's production, and you're asking me to co-create with them instead of directing them on what to do, there's this fear of not being able to deliver, right? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's a legitimate fear, and it's born out of an existing mindset that is not healthy, not healthy. So now that being said, it does exist. It does exist. So if I've got a board of directors that is holding, you know, that's holding my feet to the fire to produce a quarterly result, yeah, I've got more. Yeah, I've got more to do with my board than I do with my employees at that point in time, because I need to level set some expectations. If I'm the kind of leader that is going to set about setting up a culture where co-creation and coordinated movement are valued. 
The role of a leader primarily in an organization is to set and tend to a healthy culture because the culture is an artifact of the relations, the relationships. Mm -hmm. um, and if the board doesn't understand that, as an example, the board, you know, uh, you know, that, that gets to be a tight, tight, tight rope to walk. Uh, until you can start producing results for the board, and, and I'm being you know, very generic here, they're going to keep your pressure on. And you want to get some breathing room in there. So you either negotiate that up front. I mean, as an example, um, I was doing some work with the hospital system a number of years ago. And new CEO, the board had brought, uh, brought him in to turn around this organization. Uh, and it wasn't a large hospital system. There were only um, a couple of hospitals involved with it, but, uh, but it, was, it, was, it was a system that employed a bunch of people. Um, toxic environment, again, as a matter of fact, uh, two of the major healthcare providing consultancies had been fired or had fired the, you know, the hospital. <laughs> they didn't as want to clients. work with us. We, uh -huh. Yeah, they had fired the client. We can't work with you guys. Um, so new CEO came in. My my conversation with him, you know, was was pretty simple. It's going to take you longer than you want to take to turn this thing around. It's going to take you longer than the board wants you to take to turn this around. So you need to have that conversation. So that was one part. The other one is it's going to cost you more money than you want to spend because it's going to it's going to require not a band aid. It's going to require some deep level work. Yeah, over time, I'm going to need at least three years to work with you and your team. And if you're not willing to do both of those things we're not going to be able to work together. And that wasn't said in a punitive way. It wasn't said in a demanding way. It was said, you know, said in the context of here are the parameters for this kind of work. Because we're working with mindset. We're working with, you know, reified structures. And it will take time to move them. And he got you know, buy-off on the board uh, to, to do this. And, and, and we ended up actually doing some incredibly uh, effective work in that organization. Uh, we had to turn some people over in the executive team. Yeah, you know, they just weren't going to move. And you know, it was done with compassion. You know, they ended up in, in different positions in different organizations. And, and as far as I know, they all are actually thriving uh, today. But the idea here is it takes work. Yeah, you know, mindset shifting. Yeah, you know, then you know, this is where we start moving into uh, 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 the idea of uh, disruptive reality. You know, mm -hmm. the mm -hmm. reality distortion field. Uh, you have to start seeing things a little differently and start acting that, you know, acting in a way that says this is the way it is. Mm -hmm. This is the way it is. Yes. Uh, that was a fascinating concept that you had actually in both books, the reality mm -hmm. distortion field. And <laughs> I wanted to explore this with you because I know it's a new idea for some of my audience and the concept of imagining what you want and vividly picturing that and then behaving as that's your reality. That, that seems a little strange for people that have never considered that before. So I would love for you to talk about what does it really mean and how does it work in practice yeah well yeah the idea of the reality distortion field um it, it, i mean i won't go into background on this but yeah it originally was uh um brought into awareness yeah in an old star trek 
one of the original Star Trek uh, episodes. Um, but Steve Jobs is probably the most famous person for having what was called a real, uh, reality distortion field around him. And, and, and what happened, you know, the, the way that the story is told is when people were in Steve's presence and he was on about an idea, something that he wanted to have happen that uh, others would say, God, that's the craziest thing in the world. Uh, you know, like I want to have 5,000 know, songs in this little thing that I'm going to call an iPod. That's crazy. You can't do that. But you get close to Steve and he would talk, he would act, he would speak, uh, he would interact, not as if it were real, were real. He would act as it's real. You know, he would take the if out of it. He says, there's no question. You act in a way that says this is the reality that we're working with today. And people would get in there and they'd get that energy. They'd get that energy. It's a frequency dynamic. There is a frequency to ideas that when they're alive, they just buzz and it's contagious. And so when people were working with Steve and they'd be around him, you know, they'd kind of, they'd, they'd start to buy in. Ownership transfer, co-creation would begin to be, you know, <laughs> you know, part of what was going on here. They'd walk away and they'd go, God, what just happened? And somebody would say, oh, you got caught by Steve's reality distortion field. Apple today is close to being a $3 trillion company. Their, their market cap is just, I mean, yeah, they closed yesterday, I think, 34 cents away from crossing the $3 trillion market cap line. Mm. Now, Tim Cook's had a lot to do with that. But Steve set it in motion through the use of, yeah, alternative realities. Possi leaders bring possibility into visibility. And once they're visible, they can be translated into reality. And that's the reality distortion field. So leaders that act as this future state is already here, they have an energetic dynamic to them. I, th I think uh, Elon Musk is, is a great exemplar of that today as well. I mean, he's doing crazy stuff. Uh, Peter Diamandis, you know, the ex-prize. Uh, the ex there are people out there, Jeff Bezos did this. I mean, and I, and I cite big people here in the sense that, you know, most people are familiar with them. But there are people doing this in education. There are people doing this, you know, my wife does it with her foundation. Act as this reality is here today. Just act as, now, when I'm working with people, how, how does this get done? <laughs> because this is all, how do I do that? I was, you know, leading one of my mastermind programs this week, and, um, this you know, area that we were focusing on was literally the reality distortion field. And the question was, how do we actually hold that energetic state so that, that, so that it becomes infectious? For me, the secret ingredient is gratitude. Mm. Gratitude. Talk I'm more grateful. about that because it's not an obvious connection. It's not an obvious, yeah. The idea of gratitude, I'm great. It's impossible for me to be grateful for something that I don't experience as being real today. So I move into gratitude for that possibility. I, I'm so happy and grateful now that I've experienced this in my life. I connect that, and gratitude has a feeling structure to it. Now, this gets a little woo-woo and then it kind of moves into the, you know, the metaphysical field a little bit, but it's a, it's a way to entertain, you know, kind of this might work. Newton's third law of thermodynamics says that every action causes an opposite and equal reaction. 
Okay, there's this reciprocity that kind of comes into play. So ideas exist wherever they exist. I'm grateful now that this idea is part of my reality. I'm grateful that is that it's manifesting in my experience. My experience. I may not be able to see it or touch it right now, but I'm acting like it's here. I'm acting as if it's here. I'm grateful that I'm experiencing this today. Experiencing this today. That great that gratitude. Is it is a directional? I mean, it moves in the direction of that idea. That idea now starts, you know, Newton's third law. That idea starts moving towards me. Now it seems kind of woo-woo, like I said, but there's a reciprocity when I continue to entertain the 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 reality of this idea existing now. Now's a place. Now's a place. I can move now anywhere I want it to move. Okay. I speak it, I act it, I smell it, I taste it, I point to it, I set my calendar up to uh, mimic it. You know, everything that I do around me is organized on the presumption that this reality, this new reality, this possibility actually exists today. People around me look around you know, and go, well, yeah, but. And I'm going, yeah, I understand. Now, you know, it is here, so how are we going to handle this? Well, we don't have the resources, I know, but this is here, so you know what? What do we need to do to make sure that the resources, I mean, it changes the way that people ask questions. It changes the way that people behave. How I describe something determines how I feel about it. How I feel about it drives my behavior. Leaders cause movement through behavior. The way, and in trying to change somebody's behavior is a fool's errand. You're not going to get to, you know, you, it's crazy. You can't change somebody's behavior. Those of us that have been married <laughs> you know, understand exactly how this works. But you can change people's description of what's going on in their world. Change the description you, you know, internally in their mind. You change how they feel about what, the, what, what they're being asked to, do, you know, to, to participate with. That feeling translates into a behavior shift. Change the description, you change the experience, you change the experience, you change the behavior. It's, and it's predicated on gratitude. Mm -hmm. I'm connected. And this is where compassion comes back into play. I'm connected to that idea. I'm compassionate. I feel compassion for that idea. And compassion is an attractive force. Yeah, it will move towards me because I'm compassionate. I'm welcoming it. I'm actually welcoming it in. Well, as you're talking, I was thinking, this isn't woo-woo, because if you think about worrying the opposite, where you're envisioning what you don't want, and you're attracting yeah. that, you know, yeah. it's, 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 the, it's the better way to do it, is to be it, grateful. It absolutely for. is. And, and I yeah. want you to talk a little bit about the importance of the feeling that's attached to it, because that's... Yeah. What, you know, Napoleon Hill talks about that desire has to be hot yep. and burning. And that plays a really significant role in bringing that into reality also, right? Well, it, it absolutely does. Yeah. When Hill is talking, you know, Wallace Waddles, and you know, when you look at um, um, The Science of Getting Rich, you know, his book, uh, you know, when you study any of this, you know, this material, um, fun, and, and physics, yeah, quantum physics is actually speaking to this today as well. I mean, you know, we are beginning to see the merging of uh, esoteric uh, you know, philosophical ideas being validated by physics today at the quantum level. 
everything vibrates, everything moves. There is nothing in this universe that is not vibrating in some way, shape, or form. And I say vibrating in a very literal sense. There's a frequency associated with every material thing on the planet, including our thoughts. Our thoughts, they're electrical impulses, they're electrochemical impulses that occur in our brain. Because they're electrochemical, there are vibrational frequencies associated with them. They have matter, they have mass. They for the human being that we all are, our emotions are our frequency modulators. Yeah, our feelings are the way that we, you know, I, when I feel gratitude, it has a different flavor to it than when I feel worry or when I feel shame or when I, I mean, there is, there are different qualitative emotional states that have vibratory experiences. When you walk into somebody's office, or send into the home of somebody that is angry or upset, they haven't said a word, but there's an energetic dynamic of that anger, that disappointment that you kind of go, whoa, I think I'm gonna stay away for a little bit here. When you walk into some, uh, somebody's place in happiness, and this is you know when I walked into David's office, mm -hmm. there was this feeling that was palpable that translated into very tangible and real results. It's an attractor. It attracts. So emotional states, this is you know why gratitude becomes such an important catalyst for this. I feel grateful for the presence of this ideal in my life. And I, that, that gratitude matches the frequency structure of that ideal. And it can't not manifest in some way, shape, or form. I don't worry about the how. And it's not to say that I don't do things. Absolutely, you know, it's important to do. But the how takes care of itself. I mean, stuff will appear where I, you know, that's, you know, the, the whole notion of right action. Buddhists talk about this. The Sufis talk about effortless efforting. I mean, there are things that need to be done. But when I'm in flow, when I'm working with it, it's, it's just, it matches that energetic state. This Gratitude is the mechanism. Yes. And so this also ties in with the role of intuition and really paying attention to our inner wisdom that I think we tend to squelch because of mm -hmm. that rational, you know, is it, does it, is it logical? Is it proven evidence-based all of this when we ignore this other piece? And I'm wondering if you see that often with leaders that you have to help them relearn to pay attention to this other very important source of information. Absolutely. Uh, we're trained, you know, educationally and we're trained by society to act. Yeah, the Western man acts, you know. So taking time to pause is something that's really foreign to a lot of leaders. It's something that's really foreign to a lot of people. Yeah, it's kind of like, well, why would I waste my time just sitting doing nothing? Well, doing nothing can be incredibly beneficial because until I can quiet my mind, my soul that's connected to the spirit of life. And I don't mean this in a religious sense. I mean this very tangibly. There is a spirit in life that is intelligent. There's so much noise in people's heads today that they can't hear that intelligence. And that intelligence is, you know, that, that intelligence is always looking for sunlight. I mean, you think, go back to nature. You know, you, you see a seed that beginning to, you know, it's poking through the crack in the concrete. It's kind of like, where did that come from? 
Nature looks for expression and expansion, always. It's a creative force. And when aliveness is squashed, companies die. When aliveness is not allowed to flourish, it doesn't work. The way we allow it to flourish is to find ways to quiet things every now and then. Yeah, I've been meditating since the 1970s. It, it, it's you know, and I don't claim to have done it every day. You know, and I certainly don't do it 14 hours a day. Uh, you know, it's you know, but it's something that I pay attention to. I quiet my mind, and yeah, the uh, the book, you know, the Leadership Mindset Weekly, that came out of an idea. But beginning of the pandemic last year, what can I do? What can I say? How can I position something? And I and I wrote that book in about four months. It was just and it was a joy to do. It was an absolute, I loved writing it because I was expressing creativity and aliveness was the experience that I was having as I was going through the process of putting that book together. Mm -hmm. And I loved that book. I actually loved them both. And it, we could keep talking for another hour. I know, Blaine, I'm looking at our, our time, though. I want to say one thing about the Leadership Mindset Weekly because I really want to encourage people to buy it. Even though you wrote it to be read, you know, one one idea per week, and and you can certainly do it that way because there's plenty to think about. I love the blending of these quotes and then your your narrative for that section um, around that and building on it is just really profound. I've got you know underlines asterisks. Um, in terms of my own personal development, that's where I see that book, the conscious. I mean, the uh, compassionate capitalism is also just very profound in what you're presenting that's different than what we see in most organizations. And so those elements that we've talked about today that you brought out, I really want to encourage my readers to get both of your books. You have so much life wisdom and experience from working with all these clients and your own personal development over the years. I know it's never stopped. It's still ongoing. And yeah. um, it's why we have so much fun, I think, when we talk, because, you know, there are these elements of, I guess, uh, stimulating thinking that um, are, are really valued. And so I really yeah. appreciate who you are and what you are doing in the world and the impact you're having. How about letting my listeners know how they can connect with you and learn more about your services and any exciting things you have coming up? <laughs> Great. Well, Meredith, first of all, just thank you for those comments. I appreciate it. I, I love our conversations. I, I wish we weren't on opposite coasts, <laughs> you know, so we can get together physically and just sit down and have, you know, long conversations. Um, People can find out more about what I'm up to at BlaineBartlett.com. That's probably the easiest, uh, you know, the website <clears throat> has got resources and whatnot on it. Uh, and, and they can get the books and you know, anything else that I've got going on there. Um, yeah, I've got something coming up this, this, this year. We're, we're playing with the idea of, uh, you know, the ontological design. You know, how, do we, how do people design reality for themselves? Uh, and I use the word ontological design. It's, you know, forget about it. Yeah, the, the whole idea here is how do I design a year that designs me in return rather than just kind of going into the year uh, with a default like I've always done? I want to be intentional. How can I design this next year, 2022, so that it designs me into being the best person I can be during that year? 
Yeah. And that's, you know, we've got some programs that we're, you know, that we're putting together around that. We've got a new book coming out uh, that uh, begins to articulate that. Yeah. Be a good one is, is the title of the book, moving from good mm -hmm. to grace. So that will be coming out. Uh, so, I mean, we've got a lot of stuff, you know, that we're playing with right now that I think is really exciting. That's great. Yeah. I'm sorry we didn't get to the ontological design because I remembered you talking about that with Tony in terms of your home and creating yep. your home in a way that fed you really, you know, it helped with your own growth. So we'll just leave that uh, as a hanging thing for people <laughs> to pursue with your, your next book and your next program. Blaine, thank you again for, for joining me today. This has been such a treat. Meredith, it has been my absolute pleasure. I've loved this conversation. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to my podcast. Now head over to growstrongleaders.com and check out our two books, Connect With Your Team and Peer Coaching Made Simple. While you're there, download the free facilitator guide to find out how to implement our unique peer coaching system. Until next time, I'm Meredith Bell.